This is Law and Disorder. Today on Law and Disorder, we welcome San Francisco District Attorney Chesa Boudin, who is being challenged for his progressive policies in a recall election. He's doing a terrific job, and that's why the Trump people all across the country have raised over $2 million to try to get rid of him. It's a bellwether. We're also joined by journalist Chris Hedges to talk about the latest and disastrous judicial decision that continues the persecution of the great journalist Julian Assange. Julian Assange has been indicted and the U.S. is trying to extradite him for revealing evidence of U.S. war crimes, but his prosecution is a major threat to investigative journalism. Stay with us. I'm New York City attorney and author Michael Stephen Smith. And I am attorney Marjorie Cohn, professor emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law and regular columnist for truthout.org. Chesa Boudin has been serving San Franciscans as their district attorney for nearly two years. He is a leading progressive in what has been called the Progressive Prosecutors Movement. Other progressive district attorneys in that small cohort are George Gascon in Los Angeles and Larry Krasner in Philadelphia. In Berger v. United States, the Supreme Court said that the duty of a prosecutor in a criminal prosecution is not that it shall win a case, but that justice shall be done. Yet all too many prosecutors are more concerned with winning cases than doing justice, which includes the protection of constitutional rights. Chesa campaigned by proposing solutions to the disaster of mass incarceration, one of the civil rights issues of our time. He introduced policies of diversion and no-cash bail. He put fewer juveniles behind bars. He opposed the death penalty and focused his efforts on helping victims of crime. Chesa said that the recall effort is about criminal justice reform, that it is a question of whether we are going to go forward and continue to implement data-driven policies that center crime victims, that invest in communities impacted by crime, and that use empirical evidence to address root causes of crime in our communities or if we are going to go back to the failed policies of Reagan and Trump. Today, Chess's efforts are being challenged. 83,000 signatures were gathered in San Francisco by paid workers to put a recall Boudin question on the California state ballot in June. Even Donald Trump has injected himself into the campaign in what has become a national, well-funded Republican pushed. Fear-mongering is employed to create a false conception that crime in San Francisco is rising. Today, my co-host Michael Smith and I talk with Chesa Boudin about his philosophy and successful efforts as a progressive prosecutor. Chesa Boudin, welcome back to Law and Disorder. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure to be on the show. Let's talk about the causes of crime in U.S. society today. Many people say that crime has little to do with the unequal distribution of wealth, racism, poor health care, lack of education, unemployment, and poverty in general. 
How do you respond to the conservative line about crime being the product of social and cultural pathologies? Well, look, I mean, let's let's be clear. There is ample empirical evidence, data, during hundreds of years of U.S. and world history that show that when things like unemployment go up, crime also goes up. When homelessness increases, crime also increases. And um, just yesterday, I was watching a public hearing at one of our uh, local San Francisco commissions. And one of the speakers who was born and raised in San Francisco, a young woman, described growing up um, in and out of stable housing. And at one point, she said she was living uh, fully on the streets. And to survive, she stole. She stole food. She stole other things to meet her basic life necessities. And she also began using substances to stay awake at night to protect herself from the various dangers that are much more present for folks sleeping on the streets than those of us sleeping behind closed doors. And she said that as soon as she was able to get a job and once she was able to get housing because of the income she earned from that job, she stopped committing crimes and she stopped using substances. So um, that story was really powerful, both because I think it is representative of the challenges that so many people feel when they don't have stable housing or they don't have access to income to meet their basic needs. And also because as you, as your question points out, there is this false narrative that everybody who commits crimes does so because they're evil people. Um, And I want to be really clear about another thing that we see every day in my office uh, of the district attorney. We see people who have committed crimes who are also victims of crimes. In other words, we may be prosecuting someone in courtroom number nine who is receiving victim services for a case in courtroom number 10. That happens every day in San Francisco and across this country. There is a false dichotomy between this idea that there are good people who are victims and bad people who are criminals. All of us make mistakes and all of us are capable of committing crimes if we are pushed to the extremes of desperation. Now, that is not to say that every single person who commits crime is a victim or that every person is doing it out of necessity. There are certainly some people who see criminal behavior as a shortcut to accumulate tremendous ill-gotten gains. There are people who are sociopaths who uh, believe uh, or, or, or take pleasure in harming others. But we need to remember that those cases are really the exception, not the rule, when it comes to what we see every day in America's criminal justice system. Chase, you campaigned in 2019 on a platform focused on ending mass incarceration. Do you believe that reliance on jails and prisons actually undermines public safety? And if so, how so? I do, and I believe it does in a number of different ways. You know, first of all, jails and prisons are tremendously expensive. And investment in this country, in this state, across the United States, uh, in building new jails and prisons and funding them to the tune of many billions of dollars a year um, just in California has really bankrupted our local governments of the resources needed to build safe and vibrant communities. Think about what the safest communities you know have in common. They have things like clean streets. They have things like good public schools. And they have things like easy access to education and employment. Those are things that we need to invest in. We need to invest in housing. We need to invest in making sure that when people 
are suffering from mental illness, they can get easy access to treatment. When our communities have investments in those areas, we have lower crime rates and we have safer communities. Now, uh, 2020 and 2021 have showed us a couple of other ways in which uh, mass incarceration and over-reliance on jails and prisons actually undermines public safety. And I want to give you one really clear example, and that's COVID-19. We watched all around the United States as jails and prisons served as primary vectors for the spread of the disease. They served, in other words, as epidemics within the pandemic. And, and what I mean by that is you can look at certain places like uh, Marion Prison in Ohio or uh, San Quentin Prison here in the Bay Area or Cook County Jail in Illinois that were actually the number one vectors for the spread of disease, not just to those who are incarcerated. To be clear, plenty of incarcerated people died unnecessarily, more than 20 in San Quentin Prison just across the Golden Gate Bridge from where I'm talking to you right now. But more than just that, these carceral centers served to spread COVID to the sheriffs and prison guards that work in them, to the nursing staff and janitors that work in them, and to all of the families and communities that those employees go home to at the end of their shifts. This was a critical threat to public safety and one that required urgent intervention um, of the kind we took in San Francisco to safely reduce the jail population to ensure that not a single case of COVID would be spread within our jail. Um, the other thing that I want to just mention, which is a, a longer term issue when it comes to jails and prisons and public safety, is that we know jails and prisons are violent places. We know that sexual assault occurs on a regular basis. We know that other forms of violence occur. And so there's a bigger picture question about whose safety do we care about? If we're sending people who are drug addicts or mentally ill into places where we know they'll be vulnerable to being sexually assaulted, what does that say about how we are prioritizing public safety? And since we know that jails and prisons do an abysmal job, an embarrassing job of rehabilitating people or of setting them up to succeed when they're released, what does that say about public safety? In, in other words, we know that in California, as across the country, about two thirds of people being released from prison will be reincarcerated within a couple of years. We are not setting people up to succeed. All too often, we are releasing people who we know have a history of substance use, who didn't receive any substance treatment, any job training, and we're releasing them with no housing. And then the tough on crime pundits and the police unions demand punitive responses when some of those folks inevitably reoffend. We need to be serious about rehabilitation. We need to treat every arrest as an opportunity for intervention and transforming lives away from crime. And that means we cannot have a one size fits all solution the way that uh, the prisons and jails have served for far too long. Our prisons and jails cannot continue to be a dumping ground for poverty, mental illness, and addiction. Jessa, arresting, sentencing, and imprisoning criminal offenders is far cheaper than providing people with their basic needs, that is, a welfare state. Do you think money is the motivation of the extremely wealthy people who are bankrolling the recall campaign against you? Do you think they believe that we can lock up our way out of poverty? Absolutely, some of them do. You know, uh, one of the uh, the official recall chase <laughs> Twitter account the other day responded to a post that I made 
emphasizing the need to be proactive around areas like wage theft. Um, and, and to be clear, you know, I founded a worker protection unit in my office. I established that unit because I know that many of the crimes police will never investigate or make an arrest in are impacting tens and even hundreds of thousands of people across the state of California, like systematic wage theft through misclassification of employees, um, like companies that refuse to pay minimum wage or overtime or unemployment insurance to frontline workers during the global pandemic. And when companies steal from workers, they put all of us at risk. They're also stealing from taxpayers. They're also putting people living on the brink of poverty and desperation in a position where they are more likely to commit a crime or to be a victim of crime. And so it is essential that we enforce laws equally. It's essential that we do it without regard to class or race or uh, how powerful the person breaking the law or the corporation breaking the law may be. And when I posted a tweet about that the other day, the recall folks responded by saying, well, if Burger King had, uh, it would have been better for Burger King to commit murder against their employees rather than to steal from them because then the DA wouldn't care. I mean, it is preposterous. They said that in another post, uh, recall folks said that wage theft is invented and that nobody would tolerate wage theft because they just go get another job. I mean, the level of disconnectedness from real world issues and real world challenges is impossible to overstate. These folks do not care about working people. They do not care about people living in poverty or facing the kinds of very real challenges that lead so many to end up being victimized as well as to being system involved. Chase, you reduced the jail population in San Francisco by 25%. You promised to do that when you campaigned and you did it. How did you do it? Well, we did it a number of ways. Um, you know, one of the driving forces, as I mentioned earlier, was COVID-19. I didn't know COVID was going to hit our country and our city when I campaigned, but I did know that we had to close one of our jails. I knew that we had a seismically unsafe jail on top of the Hall of Justice. It was leaking sewage into the probation and, and district attorney's offices underneath. It was resulting in litigation that cost the city many millions of dollars. Um, sheriff's deputies and incarcerated people were literally living with raw sewage on the, on the floors. And um, this was unacceptable. So I campaigned on a commitment that we would reduce the jail population by enough to close that part of our county jail. And we did it. We did it in my first year. One of the ways was we, uh, particularly in the context of COVID, we looked systematically at every single person in the jail. And we asked ourselves, do they need to be here? And I'm going to tell you a little bit about what we found. Um, but the other thing we did, even before COVID hit, even in my first couple months in office, was we took the bold step of saying that we are not going to incarcerate people simply based on their poverty. What, what do I mean by that? Well, I implemented a policy prohibiting my staff from ever using money bail, from ever asking the court to condition someone's freedom mm -hmm. on the payment of a monetary fee. The way that money bail works undermines public safety and equal protection under law. In other words, a wealthy person who presents a very real and grave threat to public safety can buy their way out and they can continue to commit crimes simply because they're wealthy. Meanwhile, Someone who is wrongfully arrested on low-level trumped-up charges will languish behind bars simply because they don't have enough money 
to pay a for-profit company a non-refundable fee. It makes us less safe when wealthy people who are dangerous bail out, and it makes us less, it makes our system less just when poor people are incarcerated simply because of their poverty. So we eliminated cash bail. And in the process, we allowed many people who were low risk to be released from custody. We also increased access to diversion programs, like a primary caregiver diversion program that allows parents and caregivers to be released from custody and engage in parenting classes and other programming that can focus on keeping their families together and breaking the intergenerational cycle of crime. And finally, I want to go back to what I started with, which is COVID. We did a systematic daily review of the jail population during the heart of the pandemic before we had a vaccine. And we looked at who was in the jail and whether or not they really needed to be there. And we found some shocking things. We found, for example, just to give you one example, a young woman who was arrested after stealing a car while on methamphetamines and was serving a sentence for a misdemeanor conviction. It was her first ever criminal conviction. And the jail medical staff reached out to us and they said, you know, this young woman is pregnant and it's a high risk pregnancy. We found, they said to us, we found a prenatal residential care facility that's willing to take her in. What can we do to get her there for her safety, for the safety of her unborn child and for the safety of all of us who are working and living in the jails during COVID? Well, we worked with the judge. We got her sentence commuted. We got her released and transported to that facility. And she gave birth to a healthy baby. And I'm proud to say that all these years later, she is still sober. A year and a half later now, she's still sober. She is still taking care of her child and she is in uh, long-term housing. That approach to critically questioning whether or not jail is actually advancing justice and advancing public safety was not only a critical part of reducing the jail population, of closing a seismically unsafe jail. It was not only a critical part of avoiding San Francisco's jail turning into a vector for the spread of the disease as so many other jails and prisons around the country did, but it was also a fundamental promise that I had made voters of San Francisco that we would not continue to blindly rely on jails and prisons as the primary solution to all of our problems. Chris Hedges writes in his new book, Our Class, that 94% of all cases charged nationally result in plea bargains. Hedges maintains that prosecutors overcharge defendants in order to use them as bargaining chips to get a plea, and that if everybody demanded their right to a trial, the system would break down. He says that in his experience teaching in New Jersey prisons, those serving the longest sentences are innocent people who went to trial and lost. What is your charging practice? No question that the vast majority of criminal cases uh, in this country resolve for plea bargains, and no question that the system could not possibly provide a speedy trial as the Constitution requires to every single person accused of a crime. And so there, there have developed over many, many, many years a, a wide array of practices, money bail being one of them, overcharging being another that create powerful incentives for all sides, judges and uh, prosecutors and defendants and defense lawyers to um, minimize risk and work through plea bargaining. Um, I knew as someone who had spent many years working as a public defender 
that overcharging and uh, pretrial detention of those who are presumed innocent work in tandem to often coerce pleas. And I was determined to move away from that practice. So one thing we did, as I mentioned earlier, was we stopped conditioning freedom on liberty. So if we believe someone is safe to be released, even with conditions like drug treatment or anger management classes, for example, uh, GPS monitoring in extreme cases, then we ask the court to release them on those conditions. And, and that helps to eliminate some of the coercive pressure to plead guilty and waive your rights simply because you're being incarcerated and, and taken away from your family, your job, your home, your car, your health care. The other part of it, though, is making sure that we are charging cases in ways that is consistent with the evidence. And like all prosecutors, we rely primarily on police who investigate cases and make arrests to tell us what the evidence is and what charges are appropriate. And when police make an arrest, we have about 48 hours to decide what charges the evidence supports, if any. And that means that often we are working with imperfect information. We have not had time to fully and exhaustively investigate. Sometimes we do file charges that we can't prove, but we never do it systematically. We never intentionally overcharge cases to coerce pleas. And critically, I implemented policies my uh, second month in office that presumptively prohibits the use of sentencing enhancements um, based on uh, status. In other words, three strikes or gang enhancements, other enhancements that can double or triple a sentence someone faces simply because of who they are, uh, prior convictions they've suffered, or what neighborhood they grew up in. Um, I was really pleased to see just this morning that the California Commission uh, to, to uh, evaluate and reconsider our statewide penal code just uh, recommended publicly that we eliminate three strikes and you're out sentencing, something that we effectively did in my office about a year and a half ago when I, when I first was sworn in. Um, by eliminating those kinds of draconian sentencing enhancements, we eliminate the pressure uh, in many instances on people to plead guilty. Because if you're facing a life sentence and you're accused of, uh, of one felony charge, um, the chances of you asserting your right to trial risking that life sentence when you could plead guilty and do, say, six years in prison instead, it's impossible to, to conceive of someone taking that risk, even if they're innocent. And, I, and there's one story I'll tell you briefly where we had someone who was a potential three striker who had multiple prior strikes and was accused of committing a residential burglary. And I looked at the evidence and I believe that he was responsible for the residential burglary. And so we made him an offer that was a prison offer. Residential burglaries are serious. This was a, a burglary where there was a, a, a victim in the home when the burglary occurred. And we did not allege the prior strikes. We did not make this into a life case. We said, we believe it's a prison case. We believe um, what you did was a serious crime. We're not simply going to let you out of jail. Um, but we didn't up the ante through overcharging and sentencing enhancements. And this man asserted his right to trial. He went to trial and the jury came back and said that they did not believe he committed the residential burglary. They convicted him of a misdemeanor possession of stolen property. And that's it. Now, we obviously believe that he had committed a more serious crime or we wouldn't have prosecuted the case. But it's an important example of how not overcharging, not 
upping the ante to make this a life case when the jury thought it was a misdemeanor, allowed someone to assert their rights to trial and to vindicate themselves in their defense. My job as prosecutor is not to blindly seek convictions or lengthy sentences. It is to do justice. And if we can't prove someone committed a crime and we're using overcharging or draconian sentencing enhancements to, to persuade them, to coerce them into waiving their rights, then we are not doing justice. Chesa, let's talk about the fear-mongering that's been going on to get you recalled. How do you answer allegations that you've made San Francisco less safe, that killers are being let free, that crime is rising? Your response, please. But before you respond, I just want to remind our audience that Marjorie Cohn and I are interviewing you, Chesa Boudin. You're the district attorney in San Francisco. You've been there for almost two years, and the uh, Trump people and others are trying to get you out. How do you uh, respond to the uh, question of fear-mongering? What we're seeing in San Francisco and across the country is a historic rise in copaganda, in fear-mongering and news media stories driven by police union rhetoric that is exploiting tragedies of the kind that occur everywhere in every jurisdiction. Um, but they're focusing on jurisdictions like mine, where we have reform-minded prosecutors who are trying to invest in alternatives to incarceration. And they are exploiting high-profile crimes to undermine policies rooted in racial justice, in criminal justice reform, and in building safe and vibrant communities. It's dishonest, it's unfair, and it is undermining public safety and public trust in democracy and our criminal legal system. Um, I want to be really clear that when crimes occur in San Francisco, which I know they do, when there are victims of crime in San Francisco, which sadly there are every day, as in all major cities, we have work to do. We have work to do to make people safer, to provide victim services to those that have been harmed, and to implement policies that will prevent further crimes. And I know that the data and the crime statistics don't mean anything if you are one of the people who has been a victim of crime. If your family members have been harmed by crime, then the statistics don't mean much to you. I also know that good public policy must, in all areas, including and especially criminal justice policy, be grounded in empirical evidence, in science, and in data, not in fear-mongering or police union rhetoric. And so when we look at the data in the two years that I've been in office, and let's remember, two years that are largely defined by a COVID-19 pandemic that has revolutionized everything about how we do our, our, how we live our lives, about how we work, about how we love, about how we live. Overall crime since I took office is down. My first year in office crime fell 22%. This year so far crime is up compared to last year by 10%. That means overall this year crime is down by about 12% compared to my first year in office. Overall crime, violent crime and property crime are down during my administration. And that doesn't mean that there are no crimes occurring. There are. There are crimes every day. This is a big city. This is a city with historic wealth inequality. This is a city with a police department that only makes arrests in about 2% of reported property crimes. So we know that there are people who can and will and do commit crimes and get away with them. That has far less to do with my charging practices or my conviction rates and far more to do with the impossibility of having police arrest every single person who commits 
every single crime in the city. I want to give you one concrete example where the fear mongers are really focusing on a old issue, an issue that's been a problem, a challenge for San Francisco for more than a decade. And that is auto burglaries, people who break into cars and steal backpacks or luggage. That problem hit peak in 2017 when there were 31,000 reported auto burglaries. And we know there were far many more that were not reported. Well, this year in San Francisco, auto burglaries are on the rise compared to last year, far fewer than we had in 2017, but they're rising as tourism reopens, as the city reopens. And so far, police have made arrests in less than 1% of reported auto burglaries. These are crimes of opportunity. These are crimes that people commit when they know they'll get away with it. And police can't and don't prioritize trying to solve every one of these crimes. They're responding to violent crimes in progress, to domestic violence, to firearms offenses. And when police do make arrests in auto burglary cases, in that less than 1% of auto burglary cases that get reported, my office is filing charges about 70% of the time. In other words, we are taking steps to hold those who commit these crimes accountable at a rate of about 100 to 1 with the police. 100 times more likely that you will get charged by my office if arrested than that you will get arrested if you commit a crime and it gets reported. So when folks in the police unions and in the Republican Party and in the venture capital community that are bankrolling these recalls and these fear campaigns are focusing criticism on my office or on other progressive prosecutors, they are missing a fundamental part of the picture, which is that we cannot simply arbitrarily punish that random small percentage of people who do get arrested mm -hmm. and expect that that's going to change the behavior on the street. We know that the most effective deterrent to crime has nothing to do with how punitive we are or how effective we are at securing prison sentences or convictions, but rather with certainty of being arrested. If people know that they cannot get away with committing crimes, they don't commit them. And when we address underlying root causes, I want to give you another important statistic. In San Francisco, this is a statistic from a 2018 Board of Supervisors legislative analyst report. 75% of people taken to our county jail are drug addicted, mentally ill, or both. If we are serious about preventing crime, because we know we're never going to be able to invest enough money in policing to arrest and prosecute our way out of some of these problems, we need to start looking at root causes of crime. We need to start investing in our communities in ways that prevent young people from using drugs or carrying guns or being victims of crime themselves. Because when people are traumatized, they are more likely to harm others. When people live in poverty and see historic wealth accumulated around them, they are more likely to commit property crimes. We need to have good jobs. We need to give people a stake in our society so that they don't see incentives or opportunities to advance themselves through crime. How can people follow your work and help support you? I want to be really clear about what's happening in this recall. The San Francisco Republican Party has endorsed the recall against me. The San Francisco Democratic Party has voted to oppose the recall against me. The corporate venture capitalists who are bankrolling national Republican Party candidates like Ron DeSantis are also donating millions of dollars to the recall against me. One person has written checks for more than $600,000 alone, a major Republican national donor.
is bankrolling the recall against me to the tune of more than 600,000. Overall, the recall has spent upwards of $2 million. And on our side, we've got grassroots, individual donors. We've got the ACLU of Northern California. We've got the Sierra Club. We've got the largest labor unions in California that represent home care workers, folks on the front lines of the pandemic. Teachers, janitors are with us opposing this recall. If you want to join working people, if you want to join the Democratic Party and the ACLU and the Sierra Club, if you want to help us stand up for democracy, if you want to help us continue to advance the democratic work we're doing, that we were elected to do, of making our community safer through investments in drug treatment and mental health care, then go to chaseaboudin.com. That's C-H-E-S-A-B-O-U-D-I-N.com. You can sign up for our mailing list and to volunteer. You can donate through that website. We would love your support. Um, this is a bellwether for the National Criminal Justice Reform Movement. And the police unions and the Republican operatives around the country know that if they're able to undo San Francisco's election, if they're able to put in place a tough on crime unelected district attorney in San Francisco, then no reform-minded elected official is safe anywhere in this country. We need your help. Well, I can tell you, Chasey, you've got my help. You've got Marjorie Cohn's help. Thank you very much for being our guest on Law and Disorder. And every, every piece of good luck should fall your way. Thank you so much. Appreciate the support. Thanks for um, paying attention to these critical national issues. And I look forward to speaking with you next time I'm on the show. Visit us online at lawanddisorder.org for archived programs and links to many of the issues we discuss. A devastating decision, the worst decision against free journalism in modern U.S. history, has just come down on December 10th from a British appellate court against Julian Assange. It will abolish national security journalism everywhere, giving the United States the power to reach across oceans and indict journalists and publishers who publish stories exposing and embarrassing the U.S. government, which is exactly what Julian Assange did. This horrible but not unexpected decision reversed the decision of Vanessa Beretzer, the lower court judge, who'd refused a U.S. government request to extradite Julian and send him to the Eastern District of Virginia, where he most certainly would be convicted of the 1917 violation of the Espionage Act. The lower court had ruled that the conditions of imprisonment in a U.S. prison are so egregious that Assange who is in very frail mental and physical health, would likely take his own life. He had already tried to do so in the infamous London Belmarsh prison, where he is now being held in torturous, solitary confinement. When Beracer's decision came down, the United States was quick to offer assurances to the appellate court that Assange would not be sent to a maximum security prison and he would not be subjected to special administrative measures which would cut him off from all human contact. It was these assurances on which the appellate court relied in overturning the lower court's decision. Julian Assange was a young computer genius, an Australian citizen who figured out a way to receive information from whistleblowers and publish that truth-telling material in order to protect them. 
When he began publishing WikiLeaks, Assange won awards for his journalism. He exposed U.S. war crimes in Afghanistan, Iraq, Guantanamo. He embarrassed the Democratic Party. He embarrassed the CIA by revealing how they spied on all our private electronic equipment. When Mike Pompeo was Trump's CIA director, he called WikiLeaks, quote, a hostile non-state intelligence agency, and CIA officials suggested that Assange be kidnapped from the Ecuadorian embassy in London, where he had received asylum and assassinated. The Trump administration brought the Espionage Act charges against Julian. Biden had referred to Julian as a high-tech terrorist, and his administration continued Trump's historically unprecedented pursuit of Assange. We speak today with returning guest Chris Hedges, whose many books and brilliant journalism have caused him to be respected as a moral philosopher. He's a regular columnist for Sheer Post and is host of the show On Contact. Chris Hedges, welcome back to Law and Disorder. Thank you. Attorney Michael Ratner, a great defender of democratic rights and the rule of law, frequently commented that you cannot have imperialism abroad and democracy at home. The Greek historian Thucydides understood this as the cause undermining ancient Greek democracy. So did 18th century British historian Edward Gibbons in his explanation of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Chris Hedges, let's talk about the practices the United States has engaged in in the last decade or so in silencing the great Australian journalist and publisher Julian Assange. The U.S. government initially tried to smear his name, didn't they? They had people thinking that he was some kind of sexual predator. What did the United States do to pressure the Swedish prosecutor to get Julian into Sweden so they could send him to the United States? Right. That's, uh, that began in 2010, immediately after the release of the Iraqi war logs. Uh, Julian was in Sweden. They froze his bank account, his credit cards. He couldn't get access to money. Uh, he was dependent on supporters for a place to live and support. He had a consensual relationship with two women. Uh, the women found out about the relationship. They weren't happy about it. And they wanted uh, Julian to take an HIV test. That was all that happened. They didn't want to file charges. They didn't accuse him of rape, uh, none of that. But the Swedish prosecutors in tandem with the United States and no doubt the intelligence agencies in Britain and everywhere else seized on that as a very effective way to begin this long process uh, of demonizing Julian through character assassination. And that just continued up until, well, it continues to this day. I mean, just all of the tactics that they used were very nefarious. Michael Ratner, in his memoir, uh, talks about meeting with Julian in a small apartment in London and uh, recommending that he not go back to Sweden because Sweden has this bizarre legal agreement with the United States whereby they can extradite or hold somebody but lend them uh, to the United States if the United States wants them. So uh, legally, Sweden, the moment, and this was Michael's fear, uh, that the moment that Julian stepped onto Swedish soil, he would be shipped out. Uh, in essence, extraordinary rendition to the United States and never come back. So uh, Julian was willing to meet with the 
Swedish prosecutors in London. Of course, they kept refusing. But what exposed the whole lie to all of this was that when Julian was hauled out of the embassy three years ago, roughly three years ago, again, a violation of Ecuadorian sovereignty and everything else by British police, the Swedes immediately dropped the extradition request because they didn't want to supersede the U.S. extradition request, which at the time was secret, by the way, all, all these charges against Julian. And then that case was no longer used as an excuse. Um, so, yeah, it's a, there's a very good accounting of the um, really dirty manipulation of the Swedish prosecutorial service in Niels Melzer, Melzer's new, he speaks Swedish, and he investigated the whole case, the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, in his book, uh, The Trial of Julian Assange. If you want it's, it, to go into the exhaustive detail of it. Uh, Chris, Julian received political asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. What did the United States do to spy on him when he was in there? So, uh, originally, with Rafael Correo, uh, who was sympathetic to WikiLeaks and, and offered Julian political asylum, they they hired a Spanish uh, security service, UC Global. UC Global was then approached by the CIA and began, in essence, began working for the CIA. Uh, and that meant uh, filming uh, uh, with secret cameras uh, all of Julian's activities, including his meetings with his attorneys, which eviscerates attorney-client privilege, and then when we would visit Julian, and I visited with Michael, uh, they would take our electronics, and we now know because of leaks to El País in Spain, uh, that they were sweeping our own, our phones and everything else to take all that information. Uh, so that, in and of itself, should invalidate the case. But yes, there was a constant surveil CIA surveillance, and the idea that all of this information is now going to the Department of Justice and, you know, those people who are prosecuting Julian is outrageous. Uh, but yes, there was constant. And then with the change of government in Ecuador and, and the, riot, the election of Lenin Moreno, who was kind of bought off by the U.S. with a large IMF loan, uh, they created a living hell within the embassy for Julian, trying to push him out, severing all of his uh, electronic communication, uh, severely limiting visitor to a handful of visitors, isolating him. It even got to the point where they took away a shaving kit uh, so that when he's hauled out, he looks, he's quite uh, disheveled and has a beard. Well, that wasn't by choice. Uh, they, they, they calculated, they built these lies about how he smeared feces on the wall and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, none of which was true but again was part of that long attempt to demonize and, and slander Julian in the eyes of the public. And, and frankly, it's worked quite well, and the, the, especially, I think, after the release of the John Podesta emails in 2016, which exposed Hillary's mendacity and conniving, including working to make sure Trump was the Republican nominee because she thought he would be the easiest candidate to beat and supporting the war in Libya because it would bolster her credentials as uh, presidential material and uh, accepting $675,000 to speak, give three speeches at Goldman Sachs. Uh, that's a figure so large it can only be considered a bribe telling 
the titans of Wall Street one thing and the American public another. I mean, all of that, I think, uh, cratered what uh, little uh, support uh, Julian had among the Democratic elites. But, of course, what he did is what any good journalist should do. I mean, the idea that all of that information should have remained secret, uh, I guess you could make that argument, but you can't make that argument and call yourself a journalist. But the reason that Julian Assange is being indicted is for WikiLeaks revelations in 2010 of U.S. war crimes. Chris, please talk about the CIA's plan to kidnap Julian from the embassy and assassinate him. It was actually revealed uh, kind of cryptically in the court proceedings, but then fleshed out by Yahoo News. And this was after uh, what's known as Vault 7. I think that was 2017. Uh, Pompeo was the head of the CIA and exposed the hacking tools the CIA uses to get into all of our smartphones, uh, even smart TVs. I don't have one. I don't even know what they are. But our our cars, uh, uh, every form of communication. And the CIA went ballistic after that. And uh, at that point, they were... Uh, just thinking of any way to take Julian out, and there were discussions about kidnapping him, even assassinating him. Uh, And there's that famous uh, quote, it was released by a right-wing news site, so you have to consider the source, but Hillary Clinton never denied that she said it, and she supposedly at a staff meeting said, why can't we just drone the guy? What they're doing is a slow-motion execution. I mean, his deterioration, his physical and psychological deterioration at this point is quite pronounced. But, yes, there were discussions by the very government that's now given assurances that they'll uh, give him uh, a fair trial and treat him humanely and not subject him to severe isolation, talked about killing him. I just wanted to mention also that the Yahoo News report quoted Trump, Donald Trump himself, as requesting plans to assassinate Julian Assange. Yes, you know how whether this was just hypothetical we don't know you know uh there were innumerable plans to assassinate fidel castro which got bizarre more bizarre uh, the more obsessive the cia became the more bizarre the plans came giving him a, a diving suit that was infected uh and would kill him with some kind of virus i mean it's got poisoning his cigars etc cetera, etc cetera. so but that it was discussed, uh, yes, I mean, and you know whether it was just raised as a possibility or whether they actually began to formulate. Chris, the Trump administration indicted Julian under the 1917 Espionage Act and attempted to have him extradited from the U.K. to the United States for trial. At first, they did not succeed. British District Judge Vanessa Baratzer ruled not that he was a political target, but that his mental health and the conditions of confinement he would face in a U.S. maximum security prison would lead him to commit suicide. Please discuss this. Right. So she, you did not dispute any of the charges that the United States leveled against Julian. But as you correctly point out, she considered him, I think, quite correctly, given the evidence of the psychiatrist who spoke in the court, a severe suicide risk, especially given the conditions of the American prison. So the Biden administration, the Department of Justice, appealed this decision, and we just had a ruling 
issued by the two-panel appellate court, it was kind of a bizarre legal ruling because, again, they didn't dispute any of the conclusions that the district court judge uh, Baretza had made, but they cited a diplomatic note, which as far as I know has no legal validity, uh, which gave assurances that the United States would not place Julian in Florence ADX, this is this kind of famous supermax prison, although we have many more, uh, either pre-trial or post-trial. That was kind of bizarre because nobody is placed in Florence pre-trial. And they would not subject him to SAMS, but these are special administrative measures that uh, severely isolate you, uh, even allow the government to sit in and monitor your meetings with attorneys. So, uh, But there are all sorts of ways to replicate those kinds of measures without calling them SAMs, uh, placing you in a control management unit, for example, or putting you in uh, where Daniel Hale is, one of these supermax prisons in uh, Marion, Illinois, and he's under CMU, so he's isolated under CMU. But the other thing they did is, in the diplomatic note, they uh, wrote in escape clauses, saying that if Julian did anything, then these guarantees would be no longer valid. Well, of course. I mean, once he gets into a system, anything, no matter how trivial, can become an an excuse. Uh, but the idea that he would end up the Eastern District Court of Virginia with Kronberg and not be isolated is, given the the animosity of the security and surveillance state, is ridiculous. So, but they use these assurances to say that yes, the U.S. Uh, could go ahead, was allowed to extradite. They threw it back to the district court and said that it was now up to the Home Secretary. The Julian's lawyers have two weeks to appeal, which, of course, they're going to do, and then it will go to the Supreme Court, although I'm not, given having followed this case from the beginning, I'm not terribly optimistic. Yeah, really. Uh, we're speaking with Chris Hedges, the American journalist. Chris was over in London and went with Michael Ratner. He's a friend of Julian Assange's. He's been active in Julian's defense uh, for many years. Uh, and if you're, uh, you listeners out there want to do the same. Assange Defense Committee is the place to go, the AssangeDefense.org. Check it out. Uh, the three co-chairs of the Assange Defense Committee are Noam Chomsky, Daniel Ellsberg, and Alice Walker, and we need all the help we can get. Chris, Julian has possible avenues of appeal, but they'll keep him in prison for quite a while. If he's sent to the United States, which seems more than likely, barring a mass uh, protest here, what will happen to him? Well, it's already happening to him. So he's in Belmarsh High Security Prison. Uh, I mean, the way they hold him there is that he violated bail, because when he fled to the Ecuadorian embassy, he violated his, the conditions by which he had gotten bail. But they held him there for 50 weeks, for a year. Uh, they, they won't let him out. And within that, uh, within Belmarsh, he is, again, held in complete isolation. Uh, he can, I think, walk outside for about 20 minutes a day alone. He has shown marked signs of both psychological distress and physical deterioration. He had a stroke uh, during the court proceedings in October on the 27th. His fiancée, Stella Morris, said that he had memory issues and uh, part of his face was paralyzed. And he has been, was, uh, we know this from the court proceedings in October, that he uh, was observed banging his head against the wall, uh, pacing frantically in his cell until he collapsed, uh, hitting himself with his fist in his face, 
They found a razor blade under his socks, and that's by design. It's a slow-motion execution because there is no legal case against him, really. This is part of what's so distressing about the U.K. court system, as you see how corrupt uh, it has become, Uh, much like the case of Stephen Donziger, which you may follow with the Chevron case. There's no even pretense of due process or anything else. But I think that they would like him to disintegrate. I mean, one of the things that uh, the assurances that the United States gave to the appellate court was that he could serve out his sentence in Australia. Well, uh, look, the the government of Australia has tried to revoke his passport and has been in lockstep uh, with Washington in terms of persecuting Julian. Uh, but even if that were the case, uh, inside the U.S. prison system, he would, by the time his appeals got to the Supreme Court, which would could take as long as a decade, maybe longer, he he would physically not be with us. I think this has long been the intent, is to break him uh, psychologically and physically. And, and he is now in very, very precarious health. Chris, what are the consequences to investigative and national security journalism and the rights of the American people if Julian is extradited to the United States, tried, convicted, and imprisoned? Well, it sets a legal precedent that, in essence, makes it a criminal offense for any journalist to hold classified material or publish it. Uh, And I worked 15 years for the New York Times. I uh, obtained classified material and published it on the front pages of the New York Times. It it means the end of uh, any kind of investigative journalism into the centers of power. And that's why most journalist groups, Reporters Without Borders, all these groups uh, have decried uh, what's happening. Although I think the mainstream press, which, by the way, printed all of this material, the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Guardian, have been quite muted. And the government, uh, to kind of assuage the uh, commercial press, is saying, well, he attempted to hack into a government computer. He's charged under 17 counts of the Espionage Act, and one attempt to hack into a government computer, which carries a five-year sentence. So the 17 counts under the Espionage Act carry 10 each. That's where you get the 175 you know, potential sentence. And he didn't. I mean, but the, I mean, all of the material, for instance, under the Iraqi war logs were uh, released to him, and he didn't solicit it from Chelsea Manning. And they've used, tried to use a very shady figure in Iceland to claim that Julian told him to hack, but then he's, he's now recanted this. In fact, he's a criminal. He's back in prison. So they've attempted to hold that up to say to publications like the New York Times and others, well, this makes this case different. But of course it doesn't. They were The empire was phenomenally embarrassed. This was the most important a series of revelations about the criminal activity of not just the United States, by the way, other countries as well, in a generation. I mean, certainly the last thing that might compete with it was the Pentagon Papers, and they are exacting their revenge uh, and making sure that it won't happen again uh, if he is convicted. You know, when I when I wrote an investigative piece for the New York Times, my last visit was to a conference room with the New York Times lawyers, and I had to defend what I was about to publish so that it would hold up in a court of law. What was the evidence? Where were the documents? Do I have the tapes of those interviews? Everything else. Well, what are those lawyers going to say now? They're going to say that uh, not only can you go to prison, but if we publish it, we can go to prison, and that's the intent. 
how can people follow your work and what can they do to support Julian? Uh, well, you mentioned the defense fund, so that's the way to support him. It's important. I write a column for Sheer Post, and then I have a show called On Contact. It's On Contact uh, on RT America, where I interview writers and dissidents twice a week, outlets for my work. And my books. I mean, I just wrote a new book, which you interviewed me on uh, uh, our class, Trauma and Transformation in American Prison. And I've been buying and sending it to all my friends. It's a terrific book. Chris, talk about the reach of the national security state and the repression it has visited upon us and against democracy and the rule of law. We know from the revelations of Edward Snowden that we are now the most spied upon, photographed, monitored, eavesdropped population in human history. And I covered as a reporter the Stasi state in East Germany. Uh, When your government watches you 24 hours a day, Uh, that is the relationship of a master and a slave. You can no longer use the word liberty. Uh, It is why the only way that we get any now, any information about the inner workings of power uh, is through people like Snowden who release the material or Manning or people who hack into it like Jeremy Hammond. Uh, Otherwise, we don't know uh, because, as my colleagues at the time say, they know that anybody who speaks to them from inside the centers of power are monitored and are going to be picked up. It's why Snowden fled the country. So investigative journalism already is on life support. Uh, And these heroic figures like Julian or Chelsea Manning or Edward Snowden are the kind of last stalwarts we have to warn us about the kind of totalitarian reach of the corporate state, uh, and which is barreling towards a kind of corporate totalitarianism. Uh, and that's what makes this case so important. And so the complacency, especially on the part of the mainstream media towards the Assange case, just baffles me, uh, because it's clear that they're next. Chris Hedges, thank you so much for being on Law and Disorder. We so value your work, uh, and we really appreciate your being our guest. Uh, you take it easy. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, thanks for doing it. If you have any comments or questions about this segment or any others, please visit us at lawandisorder.org.